My name is Father Gregory Pine, and I'm the Assistant Director for Campus Outreach of the Thomistic Institute. On behalf of my colleagues who are here, uh, we're delighted that you've come for this last installment of the DC Young Adults Chapter. For those of you who may perhaps be new uh, or who haven't yet attended a Thomistic Institute event in the city, the Thomistic Institute is a research institute of the Dominican House of Studies. So this province of Dominicans, the province of St. Joseph, does their formation, their seminary training just down the street in Northeast, across the street from Catholic University of America. And the Thomistic Institute is a research institute of our faculty. But about three, three and a half years ago, we began an initiative whereby we kind of incorporated at universities um, throughout the United States, Great Britain, and Ireland, such that students could have a chapter of the Thomistic Institute as a way to host speakers and to facilitate a kind of exchange between their respective disciplines and the Catholic intellectual tradition, and specifically the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas. So we found it to be especially fruitful, a great joy. Uh, it's been a light uh, for us and for those uh, who have encountered the Thomistic Institute in that setting. Uh, and so we're delighted to be here in D.C. in our home uh, and to work with some excellent organizers of the D.C. Young Adults Chapter. Uh, so without further ado, I will introduce one of them, Joe, who will introduce our speaker. Good evening. Uh, thank you for attending the event tonight, and a special thank you to Father Charles and the CIC for partnering with us. Um, I'm very happy to introduce Professor Jennifer Frey, who is currently uh, a philosophy professor at the University of South Carolina and who will be speaking tonight on The Catastrophe of Self, Walker Percy on Sin and Transcendence. Professor Frey received her BA from Indiana University in 2000 and her PhD from the University of Pittsburgh in 2012. In 2013, she was Collegiate Assistant Professor and Harper Schmidt Fellow at the University of Chicago, uh, and she has since taken up her current appointment. Her research interests lie at the intersection of virtue ethics and action theory, and she has published in the Journal of the History of Philosophy, the Journal of Analytic Philosophy, and in several edited volumes. She is the recipient of several grants, including a $2.1 million project awarded by the John Templeton Foundation titled Virtue, Happiness, and Meaning in Life, and she is currently working on, set, on three separate book projects. And she also finds time to run a regular podcast titled Sacred and Profane Love. If you would, please join me in welcoming Professor Frey. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks to the Thomistic Institute uh, and the Catholic Information Center for having me. I'm really delighted to be here. Can everybody hear me? Fine. Okay. The title of my talk is The Catastrophe of the Self, Walker Percy on Sin and Self-Knowledge. And I'm not going to presuppose any knowledge of Walker Percy. If one knows anything about Walker Percy, and I think one is just as likely to know nothing about him, it's that he was a 20th century Southern Catholic writer who lived in Louisiana. This is true enough, but it's also misleading. He was born a Southerner, to be sure, but he didn't become Catholic or really religious at all until his early 30s after he suffered an existential crisis born of illness. Just around the time, he quit his medical practice and moved to New Orleans in order to marry the woman he loved. So his identity as Catholic and his identity as writer were to a certain extent coeval. They are not meaningfully connected to his being a Southerner, but are meaningfully connected to his being identified with New Orleans, the only truly Catholic city in the South where, according to his own testimony, the Catholics tend to be more Catholic than the Pope. 
And Protestants are most conscious of being not Catholic, and indeed, in that way, like the Protestants of old. Walker Percy's first and foundational identity is as a Southern gentleman, a member of the Southern Wasp aristocracy. Percy was born in May 1916 in Birmingham, Alabama. His father, an Episcopalian educated at Princeton and Harvard, practiced law in Birmingham. And his mother, Maddie Sue, came from one of the wealthiest Presbyterian families in Georgia. Their marriage was publicly announced as uniting two of the most prominent old families in the South. Walker Percy was so indelibly Southern, he even went to summer camp where Bear Bryant was his counselor. Despite their social prominence and financial security, all was not well in the Percy family. While Walker was still an infant, his grandfather and namesake, who had long suffered from bouts of severe depression and anxiety, shot himself in the face. While officially ruled an accident, the family accepted the event as an obvious suicide. And though he was a dedicated father, Leroy Pratt Percy also suffered from severe depressive and anxious episodes and would also kill himself 12 years after his father's suicide while Walker was away at summer camp in the Midwest. Walker was only 13 years old when his father took his own life. After his father's death, Walker went to live with his father's first cousin, William Alexander Percy in Greenville, a small city located on the Mississippi Delta. A poet, a decorated war hero, and the son of a U.S. senator, Uncle Will, as he was called, was a larger-than-life figure for young Walker. He introduced him to great literature, poetry, music, and philosophy, all of which sparked an interest in writing that would never leave him. It was also in Greenville that Walker first met his lifelong friend and literary confidant, the writer and Civil War historian Shelby Foote. It was from his uncle Will that Percy was first introduced to Catholicism. Percy's upbringing up to that point was properly Protestant but personally a-religious. Although he went to Presbyterian Church and Sunday School in his early years, he was said to have known from the start that neither Protestant denomination had any answers for him. In an interview, Percy remarked that he was frankly at a loss to say whether Presbyterianism had any meaningful impact on his life, and he stopped going to church as soon as the pressure to go abated. Uncle Will's mother was a French Catholic. Although he did not practice his mother's faith, he had an enormous respect for it. Of his views of the church, Percy wrote the following. Will used to speak often in admiration of the Catholic Church, of her wisdom, noble tradition, aesthetic beauty, and so on. But he would not have regarded himself a believer. That is to say, he did not believe that God actually revealed himself in time, through the Jewish people, through the Incarnation, through the Catholic Church. He would regard the Jews as a peculiar people whose mysterious role in history could be explained by natural causes— he regarded Christ as a great ethical teacher, so you could put him on the list with the Socrates, Buddha, St. Francis, Robert E. Lee, etc. He regarded the Catholic Church as a purely human institution with a noble history and a great store of wisdom and nothing else. 
His uncle Will took permanent custody of Walker when, just two years after his father's suicide, his mother died in a mysterious drowning. Although her death was ruled a tragic car accident, Walker was convinced, and not without evidence, that his mother also took her own life. Like many who are impacted by the suicide or attempted suicide of loved ones, these events would haunt Walker Percy for the rest of his life. It is little surprise that the question and presence of suicide pervades much of his fiction, most explicitly in The Last Gentleman. Indeed, Percy thought of himself, qua novelist, as an ex-suicide. When asked about the influence of fellow Southern novelist William Faulkner on his writing, Percy said the following. I like to think of beginning where Faulkner left off, with a Quentin Compson who didn't commit suicide. Suicide is easy. Keeping Quentin Compson alive is what I'm interested in doing. The question that interested Percy is how to live day to day and hour to hour in the ruins in our post-Christian age in which the old ideals and values have collapsed. Although Percy would write poetry throughout high school, after he graduated, he went to the University of North Carolina with the intention to pursue further study in the sciences. His college years were unremarkable. He did well. He joined a fraternity and eventually decided to pursue a higher degree in medicine at Columbia after his graduation. There's no hint of any Catholicism in his years at UNC, except for a fraternity brother who got up every morning religiously to go to Mass. And apparently this had a profound influence on him. He respected that. After Columbia, he began his medical practice back in Greenville, where he met and began dating his future wife, Mary Bernice Townsend. But he did not stay in Greenville. Percy left for a prestigious internship at a hospital in Manhattan. But only half a year later, in 1943, he would contract tuberculosis and promptly resign. In his long period of recovery at a sanatorium in upstate New York, Percy began to contemplate both his mortality and his humanity. His philosophical questions were squarely in the realm of what we call philosophical anthropology, the question of man who he is, and what his place in the cosmos is. Of this period of his life, Percy writes, I was in bed so much, alone so much, that I had nothing to do but read and think. I began to question everything I had once believed. I began to ask why Europe, why the world, had come to such a sorry state. I never turned my back on science, it would be a mistake to do so, throw the baby out with the bathwater. I had wanted to find answers through an application of the scientific method. I found that method a rather impressive and beautiful thing. The logic and precision of systematic inquiry, the mind's impressive ability to be clear-headed, to reason. But I gradually began to realize that as a scientist, a doctor, a pathologist, I knew so very much about man but had little idea what man is. After 12 years of scientific education, I felt somewhat like Kierkegaard when he finally finished reading Hegel. Hegel, said Kierkegaard, explained everything under the sun except one small detail, what it is to be a man living in a world who must die. 
The questions and concerns provoked by his prolonged illness and his brush with death were existential. The question of what man is, of his essence, is a question of what he as an individual human self is. It's a question of self-knowledge rather than knowledge of an object or a thing. Science, including medical science and psychiatry, had equipped Walker with theories to study things as objects. And it had taught him to study the human body and the human person as an object. But the human self is not another object to be understood according to some theory. It cannot be broken down into simpler elements and principles in the same way. So the method he had mastered could not be applied to the one thing he felt he needed to understand. Percy's illness and convalescence opened up the space for philosophical contemplation. And once he entered into this space, he realized that despite his 12 years of dedicated study, he didn't have a clue who he was or what he was doing. In his illness, he came to himself for the first time. And the result was that he suffered his own catastrophe of self, a catastrophe that he would later in life diagnose as the inevitable result of a lack of self-knowledge. For without an understanding of what he is, and therefore who he is, he could have no answers, no way to find meaning in his own existence, let alone meaning in the very real possibility of his death. It was at this period that he turned to existential philosophers very much in vogue at the time. Soren Kierkegaard, Martin Heidegger, Gabriel Marcel, Jean-Paul Sartre, and Albert Camus. Walker's convalescence was long, and he was constantly seeking out climates for his compromised lung functioning. His ill health led both Walker and Shelby to Santa Fe, New Mexico for the summer of 1945. It was at this time that Percy made up his mind about how he was to live out the rest of his life. He would get married, practice religion, and go back to work, perhaps as a writer. With seemingly no hesitation, he telegrammed the following to his old girlfriend, Bunt. I need you to be my wife. I am neurotic as hell. I need you to get me out of my state. I love you. He then flew to New Orleans and proposed marriage. She accepted, and soon they were married at a Baptist church on St. Charles Avenue. Very decisive. As they began their life together, Percy began writing full-time, and both began to be instructed in the Catholic faith. In an interview, Percy explains his turn to religion. Frankly, I took it as an intolerable state of affairs. To have found myself in this life, in this age, which is a disaster by any calculation, without demanding a gift commensurate to the offense, so I demanded it. Walker Percy became a Catholic on December 13, 1947. So this decision raises the question every convert faces. Why Catholicism? Percy's answer is, I think, the only acceptable one. The reason I am Catholic is because I believe what the Catholic Church proposes is true. Of course, it is never quite that simple, and for Percy, the question is complicated given his other identities. Given his family background, which prized the exemplar of the Southern Christian gentleman, like Robert E. Lee, the question of how he could consent to popery turns into a question about why he would become a traitor to his people and to his class. He imagines the question coming from a certain Presbyterian lady, 
much like his mother, and uh, Ellen Oglethorpe and his novel Love in the Ruins. Her question would go something like this. How can you become one of them? Meaning those Irish, those Germans, those Poles, those Italians, those Cajuns, Syrians, Hispanics, and God knows who else. I mean, God knows they're fine people and I love them all, but there's a difference between a simple encounter with God and a plain place with one's own kind, without all that business of red candles and beads and a priest in a box. I mean, seriously, how can you? The second questioner Percy inevitably has to face is not, uh, not the Presbyterian, but from his fellow scientist. And he imagines that question posed in the following way. For God's sake, religion is all very well. Humans in any culture have a need for emotional bonding, community, even atonement. I myself am a Unitarian Universalist with some interesting input of Zen. But I mean, as if it were not strange enough to elect one of those patriarchal religions, which require a father god outside the cosmos. Not only that, but he, this big Jewish dad, elected out of the entire cosmos to enter the history of an insignificant tribe on an insignificant planet and no other, a belief for which, as you well know, there is not the slightest bit of scientific evidence. Not only that, but of the several hundred Jewish Christian religions, you seriously pick the most florid and vulgar of the lot. Why that? Percy's answer to the question, why are you a Catholic, is, I think, a good way into understanding what he's up to as a novelist. For Percy is rightly understood as a Southern Catholic novelist. In his essay, How to Be an American Novelist in Spite of Being Southern and Catholic, Percy considered his Southern roots and his Catholic faith a, quote, double disability. First, there is the problem of prostituted vocabulary. In the South, words like grace, sin, and redemption have become devalued with overuse. They're like so much background noise. He claims, so decrepit and abused is the language of Judeo-Christian religion that it takes an effort to salvage them, the very words from the husk and barnacles of meaning which have encrusted them over the centuries. The novelist must use every ounce of skill, cunning, humor, even irony to deliver religion from the merely edifying. The second problem he has to deal with is the inattentiveness of the age. We are busy, distracted, overcome by the malaise and ennui. We are unable to contemplate. How does the novelist grab the attention of his reader to force him to recognize his own catastrophe? I don't think Percy had a single strategy for doing this, but as a Catholic, he knew that it had to come by way of indirection. This indirection has led to much misinterpretation of his work. Flannery O'Connor, I think, has suffered, uh, she has suffered a similar fate. But then again, art cannot be apologetics, and Percy certainly never went in for apologetics. He once described his novels as most certain to offend most Catholics. He seemed fine with that. Perhaps their offense might spark something important inside of them and show them something they need to see. Okay, so that's Walker Percy, and now I'll talk a little bit about his novels. So Percy's debut novel, The Moviegoer, which won the National Book Award, 
is rightly regarded as an existentialist novel. The mark of Sartre, Kierkegaard, and Camus is on nearly every page. But it's also a religious novel. It's a novel about a pilgrim at the midpoint of his life on a search for some kind of transcendent meaning or truth, something beyond the eminent domain of pleasurable distractions and consumption. The novel's protagonist, Binks Bowling, is, like Percy, born of good Southern stock, but he finds himself detached, alienated, and dislocated from the Southern ideals and traditions he was by birth shouldered with the task of carrying forward. Rather than live in the French Quarter or the Garden District, Binks chooses to live and work in a middle-class suburb of Gentilly, just outside of New Orleans, a place evacuated of tradition, meaning, or community. It's a place designed to maximize the prospects for the individual pursuit of pleasure and consumption. Binks enjoys Gentilly. It's where he wants to be. He's a war veteran who trades stocks and spends his time watching movies with a particular appeal for bad movies. Of his own life, he testifies, I spend my entire time working, making money, going to the movies, and seeking the company of women. But one morning, inexplicably, the idea of a search comes to Binks, and suddenly he sees things in his life as they are for the first time. He has said to come to himself for the first time. The search, we are told, is what anyone would undertake if he were not sunk in the everydayness of his life. But the protagonist is stuck in what Percy calls the malaise, a kind of suffering anxiety or sense of unease. The recognition that, in spite of all this pleasure, and in spite of the fact that all of his needs and desires are being met, something is not quite right. He enjoys all the advantages of wealth, status, and education, but he feels disappointed. The malaise is a sinking feeling tinged with despair. Binks tries to be distracted away from it. The movies and women help. But not even sex, that last and only bright hope, can help him transcend the malaise. Because sex, when neither hallowed and redeemed through sacrament or despised as sin, it is just the flesh. And as Binks comes to discover, flesh, poor flesh, fails us. Of sex in this post-Christian landscape, Binks confesses. Christians talk about the horror of sin, but they have overlooked something. They keep talking as if everyone were a great sinner, when the truth is, nowadays, one is hardly up to it. There is very little sin in the malaise. The highest moment of the Malaysian's life can be that moment when he manages to sin like a proper human being. The Malaise is Percy's characterization of our post-Christian, post-modern condition, whose general circumstances are so aptly captured by the affluent suburb of Gentilly. Not even his southern roots can help cure him. After a conflict that is the climax of the novel, his aunt, who represents the old southern aristocratic vision of the world, a stoic ideal, asks him poignantly what the purpose of his life is, what his own preferred vision of how to live is. But Binks is only able to render a blank <coughs> stare in response. He realizes he has no answer. His search has turned up nothing. His inability to answer his aunt's demand launches him more deeply into despair. He confesses, 
Now in the 31st year of my dark pilgrimage on this earth, and knowing less than I ever knew before, having only learned to recognize Merida when I see it, having inherited no more from my father than a good nose for Merida, my only talent smelling Merida from every quarter, living in fact in the very century of it, the great shithouse of scientific humanism, where needs are satisfied, everyone becomes an anyone, a warm and creative person, and prospers like a dung beetle. And 100% of people are humanists, and 98% believe in God. And men are dead, dead, dead. And the malaise has settled like a fallout. And what people really fear is not that the bomb will fall, but that the bomb will not fall. On this, my 30th birthday, I know nothing, and there is nothing to do but fall prey to desire. So Binks is ready to give up his search, to accept total despair, and to reconcile himself to the malaise. But Percy's novel, interestingly, does not end in despair. It's a comedy, and it ends in marriage, which redeems Binks and his previously suicidal bride. In the end, Binks the pilgrim sees a sign, ashes on a forehead whose potential meaning is that sin is real and reconciliation is both necessary and possible. And this sign points him in the proper direction to a meaning that, in transcending this life altogether, offers the only cure to what ails him. The moviegoer works as a novel because Percy is able to avoid the twin pitfalls of being a Southern Catholic novelist. He does not give himself over to the idea that the Southern sense of time, place, history, and tragedy is anything more than a misplaced nostalgia. Nor does he give himself over to the shop-worn language of Christianity, as if the words still have their value for us. The novel also shows Percy's vision of his role as a fiction writer, to diagnose the sickness of our culture and to give it a name. Of the task of literature generally, Percy writes, the primary business of literature is cognitive. It's a kind of finding out and knowing and telling, a celebration of the way things are when they are right, and a diagnostic enterprise when they are wrong. Percy's novel works because it correctly diagnoses a disease we all more or less suffer from without realizing it, and it points the way to a possible cure. His novel ends on a hopeful note, that man's search for meaning and an authentic existence may not end in absurdity. He does not think, with Camus, that it's all pointless and that we must bravely face down the pointlessness of our lives. We needn't, and indeed cannot, imagine Sisyphus happy. As a Catholic writer, Percy wants us to see that if that search is successful, it ends with a recognition of one's proper place in this life, of a renewed kind of self-knowledge, a new understanding of who one is and what one's place in the cosmos is. Man is a homo viator, a pilgrim or a wayfarer, seeking salvation. Man's perfect happiness is not here. His life is finite, but there is in him something that reaches out towards and can only be fulfilled by the infinite. This proper knowledge of man is self-knowledge, and without it, man will find himself lost, detached, abstracted, searching for he knows not once, not what. 
Percy's second novel, The Last Gentleman, is probably the most autobiographical, and it takes up the theme of suicide more explicitly. It is also his first attempt to work with an unreliable narrator. Will Barrett, the main character, suffers from bouts of amnesia. In Lost in the Cosmos, Percy writes about amnesia as a device for the fiction writer, and more generally about what he calls the amnesiac self. The amnesiac self wants to get rid of himself, to leave the old self behind and enter upon a new life. The amnesiac wants to rid himself of the baggage of his past, but also needs to recover for himself his old life. For Percy, this feeling is somewhat universal in our post-Christian age. He thinks that for most of us, everyday life is more or less intolerable, and one is better off wiping out the past and trying to start anew. We are, like Will Barrett, dislocated vis-a-vis time and place, trying to find our way in a new order of things we don't actually understand. In The Last Gentleman, it is the memory of the father's suicide that Will's amnesiac self is desperate to forget and a coping mechanism for living in the malaise. But it is also clear that he cannot become an intact human self unless he resolves himself to this dark event and becomes an ex-suicide, one committed to living and fighting against spiritual suicide. Percy sometimes turned to science fiction-inflected apocalyptic satire to accomplish literature's goal of showing things as they really are. The Catholic writer, he argues, must attack, probe, and challenge Percy is careful to note that satire is not primarily destructive. It attacks, yes, but in order to affirm. It assaults the fake and phony in the name of truth. It ridicules the inhuman in order to affirm the humane. Satire is launched in the mode of hope, the hope that people can come to themselves and to gain self-knowledge. Percy also understands his role as novelist as clinical, as diagnostic. In the post-Christian age, because people no longer understand themselves as ensouled creatures under God, born to trouble, and whose salvation depends upon the entrance of God into history as Jesus Christ, the novelist is faced with the task of diagnosing the the condition they find themselves in. It's a postmodern age, according to Percy, because the Enlightenment vision of man as rational and capable of attaining his own good and understanding himself through scientific knowledge was thoroughly destroyed by the catastrophes of the 20th century. As Percy sees it, we live in the age of the theorist and the consumer. Outside of either activity, no one knows who he is. The age is marked by sadness and anxiety, for in the end, When all of the theorizing and the consuming is done, one is still stuck with oneself. One must still face the problem of the self. One must place oneself in the world and find some kind of authentic meaning in it. One has to live with oneself. Otherwise, he will spend his whole life trying to escape himself. But that is the path to suicide. In Lost in the Cosmos, Percy further explores these themes. The self finds itself ever more conspicuously without a place in the modern world, which is perfectly understood by theorizing. The face of the self in the very age 
which was itself designed for the self's understanding of all things and to please the self through the consumption of goods and services. The face of the self is the face of fear and sadness because it does not know who it is or where it belongs. For the self that finds itself lost, there is nothing to do but set out as a pilgrim in the desert in search of a sign. Percy thinks that the Jews are a sign. Here he includes not only the tribes of Israel, but the worldwide ecclesia instituted by one of them, the God become man, a Jew. But the pilgrim and the wayfarer must be open to signs, and the careful reader of Percy's fictions must look out for the signs he is giving to his reader, as these are the keys to interpreting his novels. Okay, so now I'm just going to talk about his third novel, Love in the Ruins. In his third novel, Percy switches genres and turns to science fiction dystopia. One reason that a Catholic writer may want to turn to apocalyptic themes, the idea of the end of the old world and the beginning of a new one, is that it's a tool to address the problem of prostituted language. Only when everything has come apart and things have stopped making sense can language be renewed by destroying the old and starting over. Only in the ruins do words regain their true meaning and value. Percy thinks that a writer in this present age, a demented age, has to shock the reader into recognition of the advanced decay of the world. At times, Percy diagnoses the condition as a kind of dementia or forgetfulness. We are in a state of knowledge once possessed, but now lost and in need of recovery. The present age, he writes, is demented. It is possessed by a sense of dislocation, a loss of personal identity, an alternating sentimentality and rage, which, in an individual patient, could rightfully be characterized as dementia. So then the task of the novelist is a bit like that of Lady Philosophy and Boethius's Consolation. The novelist, like Lady Philosophy, has to make us recover the knowledge we once possessed. And Lady Philosophy, we should remember, presented herself to Boethius as a physician there to cure him. With these themes in mind, I want to turn to Walker Percy's third novel, Love and the Ruins, The Adventures of a Bad Catholic at a Time Near the End of the World. Love and the Ruins explores the loss and recovery of self in a self-professed bad Catholic, the protagonist, Dr. Tom Moore. The scene is a futuristic post-apocalyptic America. Things have fallen apart. Politically, America has descended into a kind of extreme polarization between supposedly God-fearing conservatives and a liberal atheist. Our hero, Dr. Tom Moore, is crazy, and his perspective on the world is deeply unreliable. But just as in Sartre's nausea, in Percy's dystopian vision, it is the well who are mad or sick, and the apparently sick who are that way because they are onto the truth of things. They see things as they are. Dr. Moore suffers from morning terrors and is tempted to suicide because the world is mad and he cannot navigate it. It is the normal people who are deranged and the crazy people, the ones who find themselves deeply alienated and unable to cope, who may have something to tell us about reality. About this as a tactic, Percy is clear. 
Love in the Ruins operates under the general principle that the so-called normal world is so nuts that only a mental patient can recover a degree of perspective and stability. So in the novel, we see Percy developing his understanding of his role as no novelist, as physician, or a literary clinician, as well as his literary diagnostic method. Something is wrong with us, but what is it? The task of the novelist is to try to give the sickness a name. In the moviegoer, it was the malaise of comfortable suburban life. But in Love and the Ruins, this sickness has become a plague, a general catastrophe. The suburbs, which are ironically called paradise, still exist, but they have been occupied and are the scenes of a large battleground. And Percy, as diagnostic novelist, will try to get at the root of, the of this malaise, the true catastrophe of the self. And at the outset of Love in the Ruins, we are told, these are bad times. Principalities and powers are everywhere victorious. Wickedness flourishes in high places. The Catholic Church in the novel has suffered a schism. It's divided now into two branches. There's the American Catholic Church, whose new Rome is Cicero, Illinois. And then there is what he calls the Roman Catholic remnant, a tiny scattered flock with no place to go. There seems to be only one priest, and he seems a little crazy himself. Our narrator speaks of an eminent catastrophe whose causes and effects and prevention are known only to him, a little-known psychiatrist who has been institutionalized by his colleagues after having a complete nervous collapse and attempting his own suicide. He confesses he is a bad Catholic. Tom Moore keeps the creed of the Roman faith. He believes it all but he has stopped going to mass and has fallen into a disorderly life. He is a Renaissance pope, an immoral believer. Tom Moore is vain and seems to think that he and he alone can save America, <laughs> indeed humanity. He is, a mediocre he is a mediocre psychiatrist who has invented something he calls the qualitative quantitative ontological lapsometer, a so-called stethoscope of the spirit that measures a person's innermost self. With a reading of his lapsometer, he thinks he can treat the pathologies of the self that people find themselves experiencing. He considers this one of the three greatest scientific breakthroughs of modernity. But he also confesses, without a hint of irony, that he is crazy, quote, mad as a hatter. And he is, but this is his saving grace. What has been lost in the novel and stands in need of recovery is a proper understanding of man. Dr. Moore's lapsometer works as a device to clue us into the fact that the root of the catastrophe is really the loss of sin. Our understanding that we are already fallen away, that we have already suffered an original catastrophe of the self. Dr. Moore's lapsometer isn't going to be able to help us recover. And while it is doubtful that Dr. Moore's invention even exists, and while it is certain it won't provide the cure, it nevertheless does serve as a useful diagnostic tool. Dr. Moore is perceptive. He sees that we tend to swing back and forth between two misconceptions of the self, the angelic self and the bestial self. Those who are prone to what he calls angelism deny our, embo our embodiment and our embodied needs. They are abstracted from themselves, and tend to try to transcend themselves through art and science. 
The scientist stands in a posture of objectivity over against the world. He sees everything as an object. It is this abstraction which explains how, they, how the scientist can become so enthralled by creating weapons of mass destruction. For them, they are above the world of particulars, the world of the little girl who will be incinerated by what they will create. But it isn't just the scientists who want to transcend the particular. Tom Moore's wife is a kind of Gnostic spiritualist. She too represents the dangers of the false self-transcendence of angelism. But the opposite of angelism is bestialism, which also plagues the novel. The bestial self is immersed in the comforts and conveniences associated with our particular, material, embodied form of life. While the angelic self has completely transcended reality, the bestial self is completely immersed in consumption and bodily pleasure. But neither is an intact human self, for the human person is a rational animal, both angel and beast. His creaturely comforts must be oriented to something higher, but his knowledge must include what the angelist necessarily leaves out, knowledge of this self, knowledge of the human person, knowledge of humanity. So if angelism is false transcendence, bestialism is lack of self-transcendence. Sex is merely bestial, for example, when not ordered to the higher transcendent good of marriage and ultimately ordered to God through the sacrament. Dr. Moore's ontological lapsometer does not save humanity. What we need to recover is our sense of self and our sense of sin, of our deep ontological orientation towards God's divine life. We need to see that we have fallen away from this. And this is precisely where the novel ends, not with Dr. Moore winning the Nobel Prize and saving the human race from itself, but in Dr. Moore confessing his sins showing genuine contrition, and donning a hair shirt for penance to the disgust of his Presbyterian wife. And then he eats Christ, drinks his blood, goes home to have some whiskey, and lays down with his wife. The novel ends then on the hopeful note that Dr. Moore just might have a chance of being an intact human self, that he can love and live in the ruins. And that means that he can sin like a proper human and be redeemed. Thank you for your attention. Good evening, Dr. Is it Fry or Frey? Frey. Good evening, <laughs> Dr. Frey. Uh, thank you for your very uh, enlightening presentation, especially the clarity with which you present uh, Walker Percy. It's a man from Louisiana. I appreciate that very much. Okay. <laughs> I went to a seminary where he's buried, actually, and uh, walked by his grave to pray for his soul many times. In Covington. In Covington, yeah, that's okay, right. Mm -hmm. uh, I thank you. Uh, the, you were mentioning how, uh, it, when you were speaking of his two um, points about what, what makes it hard to be a, a Southern Catholic American writer, uh, novelist, uh, you mentioned about the... The difficulty of words, the use of words, uh, it reminded me of uh, something you didn't mention about Flannery O'Connor. She called the self the Christ-haunted self. Right. They had all of these uh, realities, but without any meaning behind them. A simple question is, uh, why did you choose uh, Walker Percy for this presentation? Ah, yes. Um, well, the honest answer is that I had been reading and thinking about Walker Percy, and so I could manage it. Um, 
But why was I reading and thinking about Walker Percy? Um, I've been doing a lot of work on uh, virtue and self-transcendence. And, um, and I also have been living in the South for the past five years. Uh, I'm a Midwesterner uh, by birth and, and I think my deep inclinations. Um, and so I was, I, I had this project of trying to understand Southern writers, but I began with the Southern Catholic writers, maybe for obvious reasons. And um, these two things started to come together for me, um, the interest in, in self-transcendence and the interest in Percy, um, because one of the things that Percy explores is the difference between I would call false self-transcendence and true transcendence. Um, and it hadn't occurred to me that there could be a very dangerous false self-transcendence. Um, and that seems dumb now because now it seems really clear. Uh, but, that, but, that, but that was what got the interest going. For someone who hasn't delved into Percy's novels, uh, which one would you recommend and why to start with? That's such a great question. Um, so... I, I will answer your question, but first I want to resist your question slightly and say that actually if you don't know any Percy, the first thing I would read is Lost in the Cosmos, which is satire. Um, it's, it's actually a really hard, it's like satire and philosophy, but it's a, it's a send-up of the self-help genre, uh, the point of which is uh, you can't actually help yourself all that much. Um, but... So I, I did the opposite thing. I read his novels in order, and then I read Lost in the Cosmos, and I was like, oh, no, but I had it backwards, because Lost in the Cosmos is a brilliant little blueprint for everything that he's up to in his novels. Um, so I would start there. But in terms of the first novel, um, I think The Last Gentleman is a, is a really beautiful, poignant, um, artful, nearly perfect novel. Um, and... You know, every, I think everybody probably reads The Moviegoer first because it won the National Book Award, but I don't think that's his best novel, and I think that The Last Gentleman is a, is a bit deeper and more on point. You didn't recommend The Thanatos Syndrome. Uh, I did not. <laughs> I, I read it, and I would certainly help appreciate your insights into oh, it if, if, if there aren't any. Well, so The Thanatos Syndrome is, a, is you know, like... A continuation of Love in the Ruins, and um, I think it's his least successful novel. I think to be charitable to him, you know, he was pressured by the fact that he was dying. Um, so, you know, maybe it was a rush job. Um, I think it just, you know, I think that everything he wanted to communicate in that novel, he has communicated better and more clearly in some of his essays. Um, I think that novel, um, yeah, I mean, that. I don't, I don't have a quick and easy line on that novel, um, precisely because I don't think it works, but I guess in a general way I would say it's continuing the same themes, um, that are in Love and the Ruins, namely, like, what happens when we try to treat what are basically spiritual problems as material problems, and it goes poorly. Was that helpful at all? <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. Um, there's a lot of, 
So actually, one thing. So I I've started teaching medical ethics, which I thought I would hate, but it turns out I love. And uh, one of the things that I'm really intrigued by is the idea of actually teaching Walker Percy in a medical ethics class because I think, um, well, I know for a fact as a matter of his biography that he became very alarmed at um, the acceptance of both abortion and euthanasia. Um, and this comes out especially in his later writings, which makes sense um, given uh, political acceptance of those two things. Um, I think that he, I think it relates, I think those issues relate to the general theme of uh, this kind of loss of self-understanding, which would include a loss of understanding of what the unborn child is. But, you know, if you think that the thing to do at the end of your life is to kill yourself or to be killed by the government or by your doctor, um, then I then I think that reflects um, for Percy a, a deep pathology of the self rather than rather than a genuine authentic choice because a genuine authentic choice presupposes the kind of self knowledge that a person choosing in that way lacks. Thank you for your talk. It was mm-hmm. wonderful. Um, I'm interested, you drew the connection between O'Connor and Percy. Yeah. I'm interested um, to hear your thoughts on one of the significant differences, which is O'Connor's use of mostly Protestant characters, and then yeah. Percy has, has Catholic protagonists for the most part. I just, I don't know if you've thought about that question or if you could speak more to that, if you think that's necessary to his sort of overall vision or just kind of um, a result of being in New Orleans and having that... Uh, material at hand. Yeah, I guess maybe I want to push back a little bit on the idea that he has mostly Catholic protagonists. Um, So the only, like, really clear Catholic protagonist that stands out in my head is Dr. Tom Moore, but he's a bad Catholic, right? He describes himself as a Renaissance pope and an immoral believer. And a lot of his other protagonists are... um, you know, people who are just kind of lost religiously. Um, or if you think about, like, like Lancelot, um, that novel, the, the protagonist is um, someone on a quest for evil. Um, and so, so, I, so I don't know that that's um, a significant difference. But I, will, I do think that Percy and O'Connor... Um, are both committed to fiction writing by way of indirection. Um, And I think that both are influenced by Jacques Maritain's art and scholasticism. And in that um, book, Maritain argues that, you know, that the Catholic artist um, is Catholic when when their art is moved by the spirit, not when they have a Catholic topic. Um, and in fact, Maritana argues that if you think of Catholic art in terms of a subject matter, it's likely to be bad art. Um, and so I think both of them were very careful to avoid that. But I also think, frankly, you know, they live in the South, and there just aren't that many Catholics down South. Um, I feel, I mean, like, I'm in South Carolina, and we have one diocese for the entire state. <laughs> so it's you know 
Um, so I think the reason why they write about Protestants is because that's the world they live in. Um, and certainly, certainly for Flannery O'Connor um, in rural Georgia, it was the Protestant world. Um, we have time for one more question. Uh, yes, thank you for, for your talk. Uh, you introduced uh, Mary Tan, and mm -hmm. like um, another Southern writer, a convert to Catholicism, Alan Tate, um, Mary Tan mm -hmm. was uh, very influential on Tate, just like right. uh, O'Connor and Percy. And, and Tate, in some of his essays, uh, also goes to this angelism, bestialism yeah. divide. Right. Um, Percy's often talked about as an existentialist Catholic, yet there's also this Maritana influence. I'm wondering if you can speak to the scope of, of the influence if, uh, or perhaps that kind of, uh, those, that variety of philosophical Yeah, that's such a good question. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, I'm not a Walker Percy scholar, uh, point number one, um, but I have been thinking a lot about the question, to what extent is he rightfully called an existentialist? Um, and, I, and, I, and I think that's oversold, frankly. Um, and I think that he was obviously very influenced by existentialist philosophy, um, but he was equally influenced by pragmatism. Um, and he's equally influenced by Augustine. And he's equally influenced by the sort of Thomism that you know pervades the Baltimore Catechism, and he actually talks about Gilson, um, Etienne Gilson's book. What is it? The Christian Philosophy of Saint Thomas Aquinas. Yeah, I was very influential. Um, so I think, I think especially early in in his career, he was um, more existential, both formally. You know, I mean, I think the moviegoer is an existentialist novel in some obvious sense, um, and substantively. But I think, um, I think that's a misleading way to characterize him. Um, and he himself would sometimes correct people when they would call him a Kierkegaardian. He would say, "I don't think faith is a leap into the absurd. Um, I don't think." You know, he was very taken with Kierkegaard's concept of spiritual suicide and spiritual despair. Um, but I think he had a pretty Catholic spin on that. Yeah. 